0: It is another privilege that we have each been given this afternoon to gather, to assemble in the way that we have, and to appreciate the purpose for which we've gathered, namely, to exalt and to magnify the name of the One who, of course, made it possible. As often as we appreciate the fellowship that we enjoy one with another, our highest concern, our noblest and sincerest desire is, of course, to express the sincerest and heartfelt appreciation that's within us to the One who died for us, And of course, the Father in Heaven who is preparing a home someday for those that are the faithful. It is the case tonight, as we give thought to this portion of our service, we'll continue our study in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. I trust that as you come with me tonight to chapters 8 through 11, we will be able to build upon the foundation that we considered, in fact, on the last occasion some two weeks ago today, In fact, at that time we gave consideration to at least a few of these introductory thoughts and I hope we can use them profitably yet again. We did see, didn't we, in the opening lesson of the series about the man Ezekiel, learning not only about the fact he was a priest, a prophet, a captive, and a husband, but we saw in that a person with whom, at least in part, some of us could appreciate the circumstances in life in which he found himself. It is with that in mind, the first three chapters of the book, we cast a spotlight on the call that God issued toward him and his response and the power delivered to him to proclaim the Word in the way that he did. Finally, we noticed in the most recent lesson, chapters 4 through 7, the understanding that attached to the judgment of God coming to Jerusalem because of her iniquity, because of her sin. We saw that as we gave thought to the tile, and to the haircut, you might remember. Both those things had their place in terms of the message that God used as the way Ezekiel delivered it. Tonight, as we come to chapters 8-11, through we shall also find some more rather familiar sights and scenes, I might add, because in it, we in fact will see attachment to several New Testament passages. It is with that in mind that I believe we're prepared then to give our consideration again to chapter number 8. Chapter number 8 I have basically entitled, by way of a brief heading at least, Greater Abominations. As we have done in the past, we'll not read the thoroughness of chapter 8, but I'll just strive to call your attention to some of the developments as they're set before us in that chapter. It is a somewhat startling chapter as you just give thought to what's presented. Perhaps we should appreciate that it begins like this The book of Ezekiel is somewhat stronger in terms of its chronology than are some of those other major prophets, like Jeremiah, for example. The book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order. As you read through its 52 chapters, sometimes as you read a certain chapter, you find that it really takes place long before or after a previous chapter. But in Ezekiel, he has dated things for us. As we begin chapter 8, we learn it's exactly one year and two months after his previous visionary revelations. And so it was, as we come to this particular set of chapters... You may keep in mind that particular timeline that I put in the bulletin, I think it was a week ago today, in which we noticed the events then of this chapter and and the few that follow it are dated for us in such a way we know very well when these things took place. As you look at the developments then of the chapter, you notice that we learn something rather remarkable even in verse 1. Namely, Ezekiel was found to be such that he received a rather powerful vision. There is a distinction made. He literally had the haircut back in chapter 5, and he literally constructed the tile as we saw in chapter 4. Here we expressly are told that he was taken in vision to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, he himself started out by the river Kibar in Babylonia, but in vision, an angel. May we perhaps quickly say it was the Spirit that carried him. "...to the city of Jerusalem and gave him the prerogative of seeing some things in vision form." What did he see and what did it mean? Well, you'll notice the first thing he saw was the one who made this possible. He saw a likeness and as you can see, it was a rather impressive likeness. So much so that part of it was metallic in terms of character. It was an amber brightness, but yet the other part was a flame of fire... As Ezekiel saw this, this being is quickly described for us as the Spirit, apparently the Holy Spirit. As this Spirit made this vision possible, the Spirit reached out his hand and he took Ezekiel by a lock of what hair remained, that is to say a lock of that hair that had regrown. And as this Spirit lifted him forth, it took him all the way to Jerusalem. Clearly, God had something in mind for Ezekiel to appreciate. May we at this point at least recollect the fact that sometimes the people were still greatly concerned. Why has God allowed this to happen to us? Why did He allow so far the captivity to develop as He has? And Ezekiel, according to what you have stated so far, our city is soon going to be destroyed, not five years into the future. Why is God allowing this to happen to us? What have we done or what have we failed to do that has resulted in this behavior, this punishment? You'll notice as you come to the middle part of that slide, Ezekiel wasn't taken just anywhere in Jerusalem. He was taken to the temple. He was taken to that location, that locale that held such a special place in the heart of all that were, of course, of Jewish heritage the temple. Let's quickly develop this thought, then we'll look at a picture. In verse number 4, as he was taken to that temple complex, you'll appreciate rather notably he was taken especially to that location described just at the wall of the inner court. As you look at it, perhaps we can immediately jump forward to this particular picture. As you and I have studied the books of Exodus and Leviticus on Sunday morning, our focus has been the tabernacle. But quite frankly, when the time came that Solomon constructed that temple, you might keep in mind with me that there were a few things such that that was a much larger enclosure. In other words, there was the well-known court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, and some other places. This particular being the Holy Spirit carried Ezekiel and set him just at the northern entrance, which will be the one on your right, the northern entrance looking inward. As this particular location was given to the prophet, to the man Ezekiel, God now entered into a conversation with him. And this conversation basically looks like this. I'd like to read then verses 5 and 6. Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said, furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the greater abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations." As Ezekiel was carried in vision form to this location, God now in essence through that spirit brings to His recollection, do you see what they do? Do you see what's taking place here? And you'll notice amongst what was identified, He said turn and look northward. So apparently as Ezekiel looked outward out of that large wall, that's the outermost one as you see it, he saw an image of jealousy an image of jealousy what did that mean what was such an image and what was the thought that so angered God that he would here especially point it out to Ezekiel well no wonder as you give fault to this image of jealousy with at least that thought in mind let's revisit that previous slide if if we might Well, apparently, I'm not able to go backward until I find the other button. With this previous slide, the one that we had noted previously, you'll notice that image of jealousy at the very bottom of that slide, the emphasis is this. It takes us back to the days of Deuteronomy. And it takes us back to some observations that God had made in the long distant days before this. This was an idolatrous image. Maybe it's the very one mentioned in 2 Kings 21-7, where there, one of the prophets prior to this time, his name was Manasseh, he was such an idolatrous man, such in fact an encourager of it, he erected a very statue of an idol in the very courtyard of the temple. Maybe that's the very one that here God calls the image of jealousy. So much so that it had in fact led God to such recognition of the judgment that needed to come because of what they're doing. Again, God says, Ezekiel, do you see what they're doing? And they wonder why I have allowed them to go into judgment. You wonder why I have now the very sentence of Jerusalem's destruction. Look at the worship they're undergoing. Look at the worship in which they're engaging You'll notice he wasn't yet finished because do you notice at the very end of verse number 6, he said, turn thee yet again and thou shalt see greater abominations. That word greater is literally in the ancient Hebrew text. There are some more things that they are doing that still are worthy of consideration. Beginning in verse 7, you'll notice on this occasion, we come to some comments I've tried to highlight like this these greater abominations, and now in verses 7 and following, you see some descriptions that here, again, this being, the Holy Spirit, transports Ezekiel to a different location in that temple complex. It says, verse 7, "...he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall." To summarize some of those verses that follow, Ezekiel is now transported or carried to a slightly different place in the temple complex, and now, as he looks, he sees a hole in the wall, and the Spirit says, "'Dig!' And Ezekiel proceeds to dig, and he finds a door. As that door is opened, he is again allowed to see some very shocking things. I'd invite you to notice it with me. Verse number 9, "'He said unto me, "'Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here." So I went and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them stood Jezaniah the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. What we learn rather directly is that here, although at times it was in secret, notice he had to dig to find the locations, but he says here on the wall he saw all the images and the idols that the people of God were worshipping. They weren't simply worshipping God. They were worshipping all these creatures and beasts and the things that were taking place. And did you also notice who the central figures were that were doing this? Again, in verse 11, 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. You and I recall that from somewhat earlier days than this, there was a recognized court. It came later to be called the Sanhedrin court, comprised of 70 plus the high priest. Here, even the leaders of Israel were guilty of idolatry. Even the ones supposedly the religious spiritual leaders were guilty, sometimes in secret admittedly but guilty of feigned service unto God, and God would have none of it. Here he makes note to Ezekiel, see what they're doing, see what they've done, even the leaders of Israel and the things of which they're guilty, and they wonder why the punishments have come upon them as they have. As you'll notice in continuation, this still wasn't all, because after all, notice please verse 12, He said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. They literally thought they could hide from God. They thought that they were able to conceal from Him that which they were doing in the inner recesses of their own houses and homes. And God says to Ezekiel, I know exactly what they're doing. I know exactly what they've done. Verse 13 says, He said unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Ezekiel, as if this isn't shocking enough, let me show you something else. And so in verses 13 and 14, we then especially read in verse 14 as follows, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz, We've also learned a moment ago there were the 70 men worshiping these idols and giving their attention to them. Look at what the women are doing. They are not to be excused either, for you'll notice that just at the northernmost temple in the court of the women, you'll notice they were in fact weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was arguably the most well-known Mesopotamian god. And here the women were worshiping it giving their attention to it, they too were as guilty as the men. As we appreciate the history of this people and the fact they ought to have known better and the fact their worship should have been pure and relegated to the proper service of God, it wasn't. As you'll notice, furthermore on that slide, you appreciate that verse 15, we come one more time to this familiar tune. We've seen this phrase, greater abomination, so many times. Verse 15 says, "'Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these.'" It's as if God took Ezekiel from Kebar to Jerusalem and said, "'I want you to know what your people have done, and I want you to know why the punishments from me have developed as they have, and I want you to know why.'" The sentence of Jerusalem's destruction is coming. Verse 16, He brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. So may I pause to say now we're headed into the very recesses, that innermost special place where the special furnishings were, inside the place where the altar of burnt offering was, the place closest to the Holy of Holies. Verse 16 At the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. Here were again individuals. You'll notice this time the only ones who would have been permitted to enter that place would have been the priests. So this wasn't just the elders of Israel. These were the priests. Verse 16, they had their backs toward the Holy of Holies. They had their backs toward the place where the precious temple was, their faces directed to the east, and of all things they were worshiping the sun, Not God. Not anything to do with the precious provision of God. They had their attention worshiping the sun. Almost unbelievable, isn't it? Finally, the last two verses of the chapter then summarize basically everything we've seen so far. Then he said unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore will I also deal in fury. Mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity. And though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. If they had any question as to why God's judgment had come, and if they had any question as to why it was going to continue, Ezekiel has had the questions answered. Look at what they've done, and look at what they're doing. It is with that in mind that that's a perfect segue into chapter number 9. For now, understanding the reasons for God's verdict and the reasons for His sentence, it brings us to again appreciate that much of the imagery attached so far has surrounded the temple complex, the inner court, the outer court as well, the evil and abominations that they had done. It is with that in mind, chapter 9 might well be entitled, or at least described as the judgment for iniquity. Or to say that somewhat different, you appreciate the Spirit had more to do with Ezekiel Chapter 8 didn't end the relationship that was taking place in the vision. Chapter 9 is still in vision form. We notice now, verse number 1 of chapter 9 says, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Because of all these abominations of which we've just read in chapter 8, now this Holy Spirit, the one who picked him up with a lock of his hair in vision form and brought him to this place, this one now cries and says, "'Cause them that have charge over the city, the ones who have power over Jerusalem, to destroy it, call them to come near for the time of her destruction is at hand.'" We notice God's sentence of destruction on Jerusalem for these sins we've just seen in chapter 8. And you'll notice... In verse number two, things developed very quickly. Behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth toward the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. and one man among them was clothed with linen and a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. So when that holy Spirit gave the cry, six, six of these angelic creatures come. One of them was very special. One of them was clothed in linen and had a writer's inkhorn by his side. He was going to be the recorder of these events. He was going to record for all posterity, for all time to witness this destruction. You notice as these six gathered, that left five to carry out the descendants of destruction. Verse 3 goes on to say, The glory of the Lord of Israel was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side you notice the glory of God was elevated. It lifted up. It wasn't as near as it once was. And he said to the one that had the rider's cord, Come here. Verse 4, The Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Isn't that a grand verse? We find here, again, to the one that had the writer's ink horn, you go through Jerusalem. And everyone that does have sorrow for the sins of Jerusalem, everyone that is brokenhearted over the sinful nature of this place, you put a mark on their forehead. You mark them out so that I can tell the difference. Because verse 5 says, And to the others, that is, all the ones who don't care, the ones who've been engaged in the sin, the ones who, in fact, are guilty of approving it and condoning it. To the others, he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eye spare, neither have ye any pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women, but come not near any man upon whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary." You and I notice, he says, you start at the temple and you work your way out and you spare everybody that's got the mark on their forehead, but all the others, you kill them. Don't have any pity for man, woman, boy or girl, it doesn't matter. That's the imagery that we find represented in Revelation 7 in pureness, isn't it? You remember when John was wrestling with the understanding of the mark of the beast on the one hand versus the marks on the the seal of God on the foreheads on the other? Here's where John borrowed that imagery. All of those that had the mark of God on their forehead or on their wrist, they were spared in Revelation, and they're finally the ones that enter heaven. But on the other hand, all those that had the mark of the beast, they were cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, and John borrowed all of that from here, didn't he? You and I, of course, lovingly want to have that mark of God on our forehead. Here, that mark allowed them to be spared. It recognized the fact that they were God's people and they were sorrowful for sin. You'll notice in verse number 7, He said unto them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go ye forth. And they went forth and slew in the city. You'll notice they pile the corpses in the temple complex. They had already defiled it by what they had done there, and God says, now I'm going to purge it completely, but before we do, pile all the corpses there. The chapter ends in verses 8 through 11 in language like this, and it came to pass, while they were slaying them and I was left. I'd like to pause for a moment and say, isn't it wonderful to be left like Ezekiel was? Ezekiel, you see, was numbered amongst those that had the mark on his forehead. I was left, he said. Don't you and I look forward to being left when the carnage of all those cast into hell? We want to be the ones left too, don't we? Ezekiel was left. He goes on to say that, "'I fell upon my face and cried and said, "'Ah, Lord God, wilt thou destroy all the residue of Israel "'in the pouring out of thy fury upon Jerusalem?' It appeared to Ezekiel, everybody was being slain. God, are you going to have no pity? Are you going to destroy all of them? God responds in verse 9, "...the iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceeding great, and the land is full of blood and the city full of perverseness. For they say, The Lord hath forsaken the earth, and the Lord seeth not." And as for me also, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, but I will recompense their way upon their head. There's where I developed the title of the lesson. We'll find it twice, one more time in the text that Cale read for us. And in chapter 11, verse 21, recompense their way. And with that, verse 11 ends the chapter with this statement. Behold, the man clothed with linen, which had the ink corn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done... As thou hast commanded. He faithfully recorded what he had seen. You and I have a record of it in, in a sense of what we've just studied. But in all of that, isn't it interesting that maybe this lesson comes before us? A lesson that might be highlighted by borrowing the comparison to Revelation. You'll notice that we easily see that God did spare those that were concerned about sin and those that, that, that had obeyed him but he had no pity on the disobedient, no pity upon those that were uncaring and those that had rejected the gospel. Isn't that yet another reflective message upon you and me about the nature of our God and His vengeance upon the disobedient? Doesn't it remind us of 2 Thessalonians 1? To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Our God is a God who in principle will carry all of these things out and on that fateful day of judgment, how sad it shall be to not have the mark of God, to rather have the mark of the beast, that one that 666, six, the one who we recognize in Revelation thirteen is the very matter that will be eternal destruction. Perhaps in light of that, we could only wonder, what awaits in chapters 10 and 11? What shall come before us there? These two chapters have highlighted the destruction of Jerusalem. As you give thought to what follows, maybe a picture. A way to help us remember what we've seen in that chapter. The man with the inkhorn putting the mark on the foreheads of those who were so concerned about sin. Those who were so desirous of being spared. May you and I have a desire to have a similar proverbial mark in our hearts and lives. You'll notice as we continue then into chapter 10, we reach in some ways a a crescendo, a zenith. It is a zenith that in many ways is so terribly sad. I've entitled it The Departure of God's Glory. Chapter 10 is slightly lengthier, but it goes hand-in-hand with chapter 11, and so we'll be able to be briefer as we discuss the thoughts of these two chapters. It begins by observing that there's an easy division of chapter 10 into two parts. You'll notice that the first eight verses or so of the chapter describe for us the considerations of the burning of Jerusalem. Another portrait of her description. You'll notice the much larger section of the chapter has to do with God's forsaking of the temple. Let's develop those thoughts a little more thoroughly and a bit more completely as you look at some of these considerations on that slide. One of the next things that Ezekiel saw, again, continuation in vision in chapter 10. We notice in verses 1 and 2 that as he looked into the firmament, it says that he saw over the heads of the cherubim, that which appeared to be a throne, a place of ruling majesty, a place in which power and the character of it was easily to be observed. There was a command and order and instruction given by the one. Verse number 2 reads it like this, "'Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city.' And he went in in my sight." Much of this chapter will sound somewhat familiar because we've seen the imagery of the wheels. You remember them from chapter number 1. In fact, to give thought to what some of those were, let me again move to this page quickly. You remember these wheels that we had seen in chapter 1 that were a powerful and remarkable image of God's glory. That was the central message that Ezekiel was to take out of chapter 1 recognize God's glory ultimately is that which is most important. It is to be honored even by you captives here in Babylonia. It is to be honored by those that are still living in the Jerusalem area. God's glory is of tantamount importance. It is here that we see those wheels again. And not only that, we see those creatures that we had seen also in that opening chapter, those that had four faces, like an eagle, like a man, like a cow, And as we remember all of those faces and the features attached to them, here they reappear, and it's God's glory all over again. This is what the people have forsaken. They have not honored my glory. They haven't given proper consideration to it. And in part, that has led to their downfall. To go back to those previous slides then again, we notice the order was given there about the middle of that slide to take, again, as you go between the wheels, to scoop up some of those flaming fires off the altar outside the temple. What was to be done, I wonder, with those coals of fire? I would invite you to notice verse number 4. The glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory." And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. And it came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from between the wheels, from between the cherubims, and he went in and stood beside the wheels. And one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubims unto the fire. "...that was between the cherubims, and took thereof and put it into the hands of him that went, clothed with linen, who took it and went out." You'll notice that this fire was especially taken from a place that they had desecrated. They should have been honoring God by what was offered on that altar. They should have been recognizing His authority and appreciating His glory. And all the while they were worshiping idols, images, and any number of other things, both publicly and privately. So those fire of coal were scooped up and now the order was given. You cast it onto Jerusalem. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed in part by fire. God's wrath had reached a pinnacled height, hadn't it? You'll notice in these verses that follow, all of it was done, verse 7, just as God had commanded. Verse 8 says, There appeared in the cherubim's the form of a man's hand under their wings. And when I looked, behold, the four wheels with the cherubim's. One wheel by one cherub and another wheel by another cherub. And the appearance of the wheels was as the color of a barrel stone. In the descriptions that follow, those wheels are again described. They are described in many ways very similarly to the way chapter 1 had done it. They were able to move at wheel. They were able to move swiftly. They answered the call of God with immediacy. As all of that took place... Maybe I would invite you to quickly observe verse number 18. Then the glory of God departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims, and the cherubims lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them, and everyone stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God of Israel was over them above. You notice, among other things, God's glory departed. What had been so prized and so special with regard to that temple was no more. That's the very place God had placed His name, First Kings 9 verse 3. It's the very place in which God was of all places to be revered, honored, and adored. And now He says, I can't even stand to be there myself because of what I see, because of what I witness, because of the abominations that are taking place. It is in light of that, maybe this lesson should be a highlighted one for you and me. Isn't it a tragedy to give thought of what sometimes isn't done in the name of religion, but yet God's glory is nowhere to be found? What men do in the name of religion, it was mentioned even tonight. I think Joel brought it to attention, and many of us have witnessed it on TV programs and otherwise where snakes are passed around, and any number of other things, so-called in the name of worshiping God. Again, what abomination sometimes man can do in the name of religion. And when it does, God's glory departs. It was here. We've seen it, we have seen it earlier, haven't we, also in First Samuel 4, where there they had the nerve to take the precious Ark of the Covenant, that which contained the very role and law of God, those, those tablets... They hauled them into battle. God had never so commanded it. They thought that was an automatic sign of victory, and it wasn't. We remember the Philistines not only destroyed much of Israel that day, they captured the Ark of the Covenant and hauled it off, and for seven months it was in enemy territory. The glory departed from Israel that day again, didn't it? When the children of Israel disobeyed the Lord like they had here in the days of Ezekiel, it was a very tragic thing. It continues so today, doesn't it? Myriads and multitudes of individuals who worship in ways unknown to God, who give thought to plans of salvation He's never taught, who in essence proverbially desecrate the blood of Jesus. What a shame. We notice here what it meant. And we also notice chapter 11 is going to give us one final reminder in case we would forget. As we then turn our attention to chapter 11, We do come to, in some ways, a sad statement, but in other ways, a hopeful one. As chapter 11 opens, verse number 1, still in spirit form, gave Ezekiel these words. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me unto the east gate of the Lord's house, which looked eastward, and behold, the door of the gate, five and twenty men, among whom I saw Jeazaniah, the son of Azar, and Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princes of the people. Here again we see a mention of some 25 individuals. They appear to be very different than some of those that we have seen previously. But you'll notice amongst it all, something obvious is easy to glean. Perhaps it's highlighted in verse 2. Then said he unto me, Son of man, these are the men that devise mischief and give wicked counsel in the city, which say, It is not near. Let us build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we be the flesh. These special individuals here that are made mention of are the ones that were the leaders of Israel. The ones who should have been the most noble in their devices, the most earnest in their consideration, the most compassionate, and the most dedicated to God. They're the very ones that had led the people astray. The very ones encouraging their wickedness. Did you notice in verse numbers 2 and 3? It is not near. They didn't care. Their attention was somewhere else. Maybe it was the local ball games that captured their attention. That's where their heart was. They really didn't care that much about the temple or the people or the worship style or what was taking place. They were materialistically minded. We'll learn later when we do arrive at chapter 34, a number of chapters from now. We'll find these people described in some very shocking ways. And we'll find where their attention was, and it was not on the people who they were supposed to be leading. You and I admire any leader who takes seriously the role that he is in. A man who who is concerned about those of whom he has care and compassion and those who he is supposed to be directing. These leaders, you see, didn't have that kind of concern. It's no wonder that the people faltered. Their leaders had their concern somewhere else. You'll notice when we arrive at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, "'I will bring you out of the midst thereof "'and deliver you into the hands of strangers "'and will execute judgments among you. "'Ye shall fall by the sword. "'I will judge you in the border of Israel, "'and ye shall know that I am the Lord.'" We notice again a reference to the punishment coming when Jerusalem's destroyed. I'm going to send an enemy nation, a nation that you despise, and yet they're going to have conquering rule over you. You'll notice then you're going to know that I am the Lord. That's still one of the cardinal errors of the human family to fail to realize God is the Lord. When men think that they're their own gods, and when men think that humanity is his own god, doesn't it remind us of that ugly scene in Judges 21:25, where We're there. There was a day and time in which they were able to say, there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. We're living in a time when we see that in part, don't we? People do what they want to, when they want to, the way we want to, for the reason they want to. And all the while, they are doing the very thing that caused Jerusalem to be destroyed you notice when we arrive at verse number 13, something fateful occurs. I'd invite you to notice it with me. And it came to pass when I prophesied that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, died, then fell I down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? One of those gentlemen who had caused such havoc and wreaked such problem While Ezekiel was prophesying again in the spirit, the man died on the spot. What an object lesson. Reminds us somewhat of the scene in Acts 5, doesn't it? When Ananias and Sapphira fell dead due to their sin, it says the church grew by leaps and bounds for a while. It shakes people up. Part of Jeff's lesson last Sunday. When they see what happens when sinful character is allowed to run rampant and God's judgment falls... People often will take note for a while. We notice here, verse 15, God holds out a ray of hope. And our God is a God of hope, isn't He? We're told that in Romans 15, 13, but here we appreciate, Son of man, thy brethren, even thy brethren, the men of thy kindred, and all the house of Israel are holy. Are they unto whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get you far from the Lord." Unto us is this land given in possession. Therefore say, Thus saith the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet will I be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. Thus saith the Lord, verse 17, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel." We'll find that thought developed much more later in Ezekiel when God through Ezekiel will say, I'm going to return you to Jerusalem. Even after its destruction, the day is coming, I'm going to bless you with the opportunity to return in that unity known as the remnant. May I submit, you and I should still want to be appreciated as the remnant who obey the Lord and have the opportunity to be numbered amongst His people. Another picture highlighting some of what we've seen in the earlier parts of this chapter. That remarkable vision involving the wheels, involving the great scene and what he saw on that throne as he looked into the firmament, again, the early part of chapter 10. You'll notice Ezekiel was one given all this information. And with it, may I submit to you, we come near the close of chapter 11. I'd invite you to notice specifically the language of verse 19. And will ye pollute me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread? I knew that didn't quite sound right. That's chapter 13, one page too late. Back to chapter 11, please, verse number 19. And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them an heart of flesh. That they may walk in my statutes and keep mine ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What a beautiful description. The day's coming, Ezekiel, when the remnant will be one which I've taken out of them that old fleshly, stony heart, and I'll put a new heart in them a heart of respect for me, a heart of recognition of my glory, a heart in which they'll be my people, and I will be their God proudly. Maybe in summary to tonight's lesson, the recompense seen in verse number 21 brings us to these concluding thoughts. We have seen, among other things, the sadness of empty religion. The people profess to be religious, but God said it's abomination. Greater abominations. Look, Ezekiel, look at what they're doing. These abominations, the very things for which they shall be punished. Then in chapter 9, we notice the reality of the personal religion, God said, I know what they're doing. It may be in their own houses, and I know where their treasure lies. The last two chapters, we've noticed the sadness of the departure of God's glory. Those who thought God was with them, but He wasn't. Today, you and I can rest assured, God is with those who know Him because He's promised to be their God. And today, when you and I do explicitly and exactly that which He's told us, we can rest assured our God is with us. That should bring us a great sense of comfort and a great sense of recognition that we are the very people of God. May we say then in finality to this lesson tonight, Ezekiel has much to say that should be of assistance to us in thinking about what happens to those that are disobedient, what happens to those who pretend to be religious but aren't. These people tried it and they know well what happened. What about your religion? Is it real? Is it genuine? Is it that which the Bible, the New Testament, the Son of God details it must be if it's to be pleasing? If tonight you recognize that all isn't well with you, the plan of salvation is so simple. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Messiah, the Son of God, and be baptized if you will attend to that need, in fact, in your life, you too can be a child of God by faith, Galatians 3.26. If you have known the sweetness of that way of life, but you have strayed from it, maybe your religion has become empty like theirs had in Ezekiel 8. Maybe your religion has become far less than the pristine perfectness it ought to be, per Ezekiel 10. Why not make things right tonight? Let that mark be put back on your forehead, for apparently it's been erased. And that's not good. If you'd like it to be reinstated tonight, we'd be honored to pray for you and with you. As you yourself confess those matters to God in repentance, He will forgive you. If tonight we could be of help to you, won't you let it be known in haste while together we stand and sing the selected songs.